Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Congratulations, parents. You've made it through more than two months of another school year in a pandemic. The question is, how will the rest of the year turn out? There have been dozens of COVID cases and school closures around our state, and the worst may not be behind us. Today, where we live, it's been a couple months since we've heard from the leader of Connecticut's Department of Education on the show, so we asked him to join us to answer our questions and yours. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Dr. Miguel Cardona is the Commissioner of the State Department of Education. Dr. Cardona, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here with you. Now, uh, last time Governor Lamont was on Where We Live, uh, he told me schools should not be closing down completely when there are one or more COVID cases that have appeared. So now that we're in November, how would you say schools have adapted to the challenges of managing uh, COVID-positive cases when they happen, Commissioner? Yes, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the work that has been done in our districts to uh, manage and make sure that um, they're working closely with the local health departments to reduce any type of spread in schools. As you know, the cases that uh, we're reporting, we're not seeing that they're spreading in schools, they're community cases that are coming into the schools. Um, So I'm I'm really proud of of how they're doing. Um, We have more cases, obviously, than one or two in some communities. that come into our schools, but the response from the educators and the local health departments has been exceptional. Let's talk about the number of uh, COVID positive cases in our schools, Commissioner. How many um, have there been uh, to date? Sure. So, you know, I'm looking at uh, uh, she in front of me as of 11-5 last week, uh, mm-hmm. there were 457 uh, new student cases. Um, you know, and I think it's important that, that the listeners hear that when we report cases, we're reporting cases that are happening um, in all models. So that includes cases that are being reported by the school system for students that haven't ever walked into school. So these are students who are fully remote students. Uh, of that number, 457, 83 of those were students who whose families chose remote learning. Um, mm-hmm. There are 215 cases of students that were in the hybrid model and um, 158 Uh, cases uh, of students that were in-person model. Um, There are uh, 457 cases, as I said earlier. Mm. Now, did you say that uh, the number of cases that have popped up uh, within school districts, did you say that uh, your data show that these children aren't catching COVID in schools? It's outside school? Right. I mean, there hasn't been any uh, studies that have examined that in uh, 100%. So, you know, what we're when I share this, it's based on the anecdotal data, uh, anecdotal information that we get from contact tracers who are the ones calling the families and, and calling the, the students to find out where uh, these cases are happening or where they might have gotten it or where they might have been exposed. And by and large, the exposure has uh, been traced back to community events or uh, sporting events um, that, that the uh, students or staff members have been in attendance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we would 
we would know if there was spread in a community if multiple members of one cohort uh, come, uh, you know, come down with COVID or uh, it's spread within a classroom of a uh, confined cohort. We're not really seeing that. It doesn't mean that it can't happen. It doesn't mean that there haven't been cases that um, maybe spread between classmates or, or adults within a building. But what we're hearing from the contact tracers is that uh, these cases are happening in the community. You know, as we're talking, Commissioner, uh, just uh, late last week, the Connecticut Department of Public Health uh, saying that 68 Connecticut towns are on this red alert level. So there are at least 15 cases per 100,000 a day. And there's another 44 towns on an orange alert. And so when we think about the number of cases rising in our state, uh, hospitalizations are now going up. Is there a scenario, a metric where the state would again mandate that schools close statewide? Mm-hmm. So there, there could potentially be a time where uh, the governor and the, our health department feel that um, efforts like what took place in the spring are needed. Uh, we're not at that point now. You're absolutely right. The numbers are going up and, um, you know, we have to be vigilant. But we also know a lot more about COVID-19 than we did in the spring. If you recall, March, I think it was March 12th, um, you know, pretty much everything shut down because we didn't know much about how it spread or what strategies are, are best to mitigate them. We've learned a lot and we know, and, and I mean, the, the first two months of school is, is evidence of that, that uh, we're able to function in a school with mitigation strategies uh, being utilized uh, effectively and it's not spreading, right? So I think those things have to be taken into account also to make sure that we're not, um, we're not ignoring the the need for our public education students to to go to school and the benefits that they get from schooling in person. You said that there may be a point where uh, schools would have to close. So what is, again, that metric? I was looking at the DPH town-level framework for these red alerts, orange alerts, yellow alerts. And in the red column, Commissioner, it said, in collaboration with local health department and superintendent, consider more distance learning above 25. What does that mean exactly? Sure. So, you know, the the town-wide alert system says that at 15 cases per 100,000 for a two-week period, you should start thinking about uh, closing things or um, reducing uh, the number of people that are in a location at, at one time, partly because you want to maintain uh, the service of public education as long as possible. In the education um, addendum, addendum four, which is all public information, if you look on our website, you'll see that 25 cases per 100,000 is where uh, we're recommending based on input from the uh, local health department who helped develop all of our addendums, uh, you should start thinking about uh, what are those factors in your local community that need to be taken into account to make a determination whether or not more students should be learning in a remote fashion. And it could be the density of the neighborhood. It could be factors such as um, access to testing or uh, fidelity of implementation of mitigation strategies. Those are some of those things that have to be taken into account at a local level when decisions are being made about reducing density in school. You're hearing Commissioner Dr. Miguel Cardona. He leads the State Department of Education. You can join our conversation at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, before I move on, Commissioner, you know, again, as we hear from the governor and others about cases rising, we're hearing that indoor gatherings should be less than 10 people. And so how do you reconcile that guidance with the fact that you've got all of these students uh, in school with staff? 
Right. No, that's a, that's a very good question. A lot of people ask that. Part of the reasons why we're asking folks to limit your gatherings is so that we can maintain our schools, so that we can keep our schools open. Because we know the, the negative impact it has when we were fully remote for such an extended period of time. Um, these mitigation strategies that the governor spoke of are intended to keep the services that we know are critically important for communities such as hospitals, uh, safety, uh, fire, police, and, and paramedics in schools, keeping them functioning. With that said, we also know that the mitigation strategies in our schools are being implemented very well, um, it, it, probably more so than most other places. It, you know, we have uh, high schools running where students are adhering to the uh, facial covering requirement, probably more so in our schools and then in many other places in the community. And I think the, the message from the governor and the uh, Department of Public Health is really intended to address those areas where we are hearing that there is more spread. We, we're hearing that there's more spread in family, family gatherings when people are coming together and saying, well, you know what, I know this person, they don't look sick, I can take off my mask. That's not happening in our schools and it shouldn't be happening in our schools. That's kind of why you see the, the difference there. Well, I have to ask, uh, you mentioned that uh, you're not seeing uh, in communities across our state a point where schools should be closing down fully, but then we have the city of New Haven, which uh, the students were remote from the very beginning. They were supposed to, I believe, uh, start uh, opening today, but we heard from uh, city and school officials that uh, there will be no in-person learning. I mean, how do you respond to that particular city and the approach its school officials have taken? Sure. Uh, so New Haven and Danbury uh, students have not had the opportunity to uh, participate in in-person in learning. I should say the majority, because in New Haven, there have been students that have attended, students with high needs. Um, I visited New Haven a couple of weeks ago, met with their leadership team. Um, and, and I've had frequent conversations with their mayor, who also has, has been a big proponent of giving students an opportunity to learn in the classroom. With that said, the conversations between the mayor, the superintendent, and the local health director, based on more recent data, uh, make them uh, less confident that they should be opening schools. Today was the day. And they have to make those decisions locally based on local factors. With that said, I felt that New Haven students should have been given the opportunity earlier on when the uh, infection rates were under 1% if the buildings were ready. And I know that they were working really hard on getting those buildings ready. I believe they were ready last month, uh, but the rollout time was uh, agreed upon to be today. Uh, unfortunately, they were not able to meet that. On the contrary, uh, what we saw in Danbury is an effort to get the students into the schools early on, but there was a spike, if you recall, in Danbury um, back when school was starting. So they made the right decision to hold off to make sure that they control the spread before bringing students into the schools. Unfortunately, uh, the cases are very high in Danbury still. If you have a question for Dr. Miguel Cardona about how online uh, schooling is going or the hybrid uh, plan in your school district, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. I'm looking at a story from Connecticut Public uh, just the other month at a state legislative informational hearing. Uh, Representative Doug McCrory said that attendance in large school districts is very poor. Kids are not signing on. And so in instances where you have a hybrid model, a commissioner, you know, what do we know about uh, how engaged students are this time around? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, Senator McCrory is absolutely right. And I think, you know, it underscores the importance uh, 
that we have to place on getting uh, giving students an opportunity to learn inside the schoolhouse when it's possible, when it's uh, when you can do so safely. Um, there is no substitute for in-classroom learning. And what we did, uh, Lucy, is we set up a new system that didn't exist before to uh, look at the attendance in our schools and the enrollment in our Connecticut schools. Uh, this system took a little while to build up, and I applaud the districts for, you know, we were hounding the districts to get their data um, on student enrollment and student participation. And we're able to see what uh, Senator McCrory said, that the issue of attendance and enrollment and engagement disproportionately affects our urban centers in our communities uh, that are a little bit more dense uh, or have greater need. So, you know, those data really reinforce some of those strategies of, uh, of us trying to, where possible and where, where we can do it, give students the opportunity to learn in-house. But we're also uh, tightening up uh, expectations and, and guidance around what remote learning looks like. Because we know in some communities when you cannot learn in person due to the spread, we need to have a quality program. And we, we're, we've provided guidance, Addendum 12 in particular, that talks about what um, remote learning should look like. You know, Lucy, we want to make sure that if we do have to go remote, the experience for our learners is better than their experience in the spring. Um, so that's part of the goal. But absolutely, we have seen that attendance in our uh, needier districts is uh, the worst, and we're working to improve that. Hmm. And so when we look at New Haven again, uh, tell me uh, what you're seeing in terms of absenteeism and, and the fact that the, there aren't students that are engaging with the online work, Commissioner. Right. So, you know, we're we're in constant communication with New Haven at least once or twice a week. My team meets with uh, their leadership team, not only with student engagement, but also with food insecurities. You know, we know for many students uh, accessing uh, breakfast and lunch uh, happens in schools. And if you're learning totally remote, the question becomes, are they having access to meals? So we're working to develop uh, a system, a more robust system in New Haven to get meals out either using buses or, or community uh, support partners. But in terms of attendance, they have been able to distribute technology and get students logged on, but maintaining those students, uh, in, the students' engagement is gonna be, um, it's gonna be a lot of work, not only for New Haven, but for other districts. So um, in New Haven, more so probably because those students haven't made those, uh, you know, haven't had the opportunity to learn in, in their classroom. So everything has been done online. Kevin's joining the show from Salem. Kevin, what's your question for Commissioner Cardona? Yes, thank you for taking my call. My, I come from Salem. It's a very small town. We have about 4,000 people. My question's about the status that we're in. We keep going between orange and red. Um, with only 4,000 people, if we have one person with COVID, we're over the number that you're calling it red per 100,000. How do you rectify that? Sure. Thanks for the question, Kevin. Um, you know, if you recall, when we initially rolled out our addendum four and the color coding system, it was done based on county by county for that same reason that Kevin brought out. Uh, so we encourage, for example, the, the health health uh, partner, the, the local health director of that area, it might be a regional person, should really be looking at um, the data, not only from Salem, but also from the surrounding county. Uh, we know that there are no walls around Salem, so people move around. You really need to take into account not just your local community, but the, the in many cases, the county you're in or the neighboring communities that you're a part of. And I think local health directors do that best. They know where the traffic is. They know where the, 
the uh, residents live. So in conjunction with the superintendent, those conversations are happening at a local level. And before we run out of time, uh, Commissioner Commissioner Cardona has to leave us in just about eight minutes. But, you know, I have to ask, when we think back to uh, students at risk, and you said that children belong in school, uh, your data uh, from the State Department of Ed show that homeless children, um, you know, they're not showing up at a greater rate than a year ago, I believe, uh, uh, not showing up for two out of every nine days. So what will the uh, state and districts do to, to respond to these children? Right. You know, the pandemic has exacerbated access gaps um, and opportunity gaps in our state. And by putting these data out and and making it as transparent as possible and working with our partners uh, from the superintendents groups to the boards of education, to the teachers unions, to the families and community partners, we have to really problem solve together. Um, But the first thing to do this is to look at the data and say, where are these students and why are they not attending? What are we doing to reach out to those students in, in different ways? In many cases, these students also have uh, housing insecurity. They have uh, food insecurity. So some of those basic needs need to be met and we can work in partnership with, with our sister agencies at the, at the state level, but also the local community agencies that can help these families get back on, on their feet so their children can access school. So can you give me an example of, of how you're doing that? You mentioned partnering. So if we're talking about uh, the children that may uh, be impacted in, say, Hartford or Bridgeport, like how are you hoping to connect with these children that have the housing insecurity? Mm. So we, uh, we're part of um, emergency support function groups at the State Department of Education. We're part of ESF-6. So that deals with uh, food securities and, and um with uh, access to healthcare uh, as well. So we're working with the local health director. So as as a state agency, we're working with our sister agencies on communicating um, at the local level with their their corresponding agencies. So for me, it's the the Board of Education. I'm I'm thinking of New, uh, New Haven, for example. We work with the New Haven Public School System to see how they can work with the local nonprofits there or the local food banks there the local transportation companies there to bring foods to these uh, families, um, provide them with options for housing if needed. And then they work with their local housing uh, places to, to give students an opportunity, give families an opportunity. It really has to be a wraparound service and it really has to be all hands on deck. You know, before we run out of time again, Commissioner Cardona, uh, when we were talking about, you know, how schools should be responding uh, to cases arising in communities, you know, I know Middletown, uh, the the city of Middletown is uh, has a, a rapid testing on-site program that the state is helping uh, fund. And so I wanted to talk with you about, you know, why this is important and how do you expect to expand it to other districts in our state? Sure. So, you know, we knew early on that building consumer confidence in public education is an ongoing effort. We know um, as a father myself, I want to make sure that my children are safe. I want to make sure that the people who, who, who I know who are educators are, are safe. And what we've heard early on is the more access to testing, COVID testing, the better. Um, and you know, when this opportunity came up for Binax now testing to be distributed in different parts of the state, especially for schools, um, we reached out to different districts and, and Middletown stepped up. Uh, Dr. Connor stepped up and said, you know what, we're going to raise our hand. We're going to pilot it. Let's try it out. So 
they've been creative and innovative with their partners there, the community health center, to allow for testing to take place in the schools. Um, and they also have PCR testing that's happening, I believe it's on the weekends, in the school area for educators as well. Again, part of this is to make sure that you're identifying cases early so that you can quarantine folks so that they're not in the school community if they are either a close contact or if they have COVID-19. And by doing that, you're communicating to the community, we're taking this seriously, we're removing people that might be at risk of spreading COVID-19 so that when you send your child to school, when you go to work as an educator, you can feel comfortable that every effort is being taken to make sure that the learning environment is, is safe for learning and safe for work. But with the rapid testing, how accurate is that testing compared to the PCR that you mentioned? Uh, so the Binax now testing, the, it is a rapid test, um, mm. but the confidence level in the positives is, is absolute, right? So uh, if it's a positive, you're, you have COVID-19. If it's a negative, um, the recommendation from the state health department and the local health department is that you go and get a PCR test. So keep in mind the Binax now testing, the one that we're referring to about Middletown, is intended for people who have symptoms. It's not intended for a screening or um, surveillance testing. Um, as, as uh, PCRs could be. Um, Binax now are for people that have symptoms. And if you have COVID-19 like symptoms and you take the Binax now and it comes out positive, you do in fact have COVID-19. If you have symptoms and uh, take the Binax now and it shows a negative, the recommendation will be to take a PCR test. But that's a local conversation between the health provider and the patient. And will this program be expanding to other school districts, Commissioner? Yes, we have about 20 districts that are in queue to have conversations with their local uh, health provider because it's not right now. It, it's really important that the administration of it follow the guidelines uh, of the Binax Now testing. So what we've done is we partnered with uh, testing um, agencies and in particular, for example, Middletown, it's the community health center there. Uh, so they're the ones that are operating the tests and um we're, we're looking to expand it, but it might require that some um, school systems partner with either a private uh, testing agent or create a system within their district where tests could be done within their district by their school staff, uh, school nurses in particular, not mm. just anyone. And before you go, uh, Commissioner, we've been focusing a lot on the quality of education for students, keeping them safe. But we know that teachers and other school staff in these schools are just as important. Uh, coming up, we're going to be speaking to an attorney representing a Norwalk teacher who suffers from asthma. And she was told she could not work remotely in that district. You know, Should school districts be making more accommodations for teachers like this one um, as they do uh, students, Commissioner? You know, we take very seriously the ADA requirements um, and the compliance on that. And early on, we, we that's a non-negotiable, the ADA compliance. You know, I can't speak specifically to this case. I don't know the details of it. Um, but I, I do know that, it, as you mentioned earlier, you know, for school systems to be successful, we need, we need to make sure that we're doing everything for our students, but also for our staff to make sure that um, the environment is conducive to a safe learning environment uh, so that they can continue to to be there. And we also know that when we're making mitigation strategies or we're, when we're requiring mitigation strategies in our schools, it's not only for our students, it's for our staff, it's for our staff's family, it's for our students' family. And what we found, Lucy, over the last couple of months is that the mitigation strategies in our schools are working and students are able to access learning in person 
and what we can't what we can't measure but it's it's worth closing with for me is the social emotional benefit that our students in Connecticut who have had the opportunity to go into a schoolhouse the benefit that they have had over the last couple of months there's no way to measure it but if you recall in the spring how difficult it was for our students and the emotional toll that it took on them to walk into a schoolhouse now see kids smiling yes it's different it's not the same but they're accessing their learning they're accessing that social network that they have um, and the the relationships that's a tremendous benefit to our learners and to our, uh, our employees and we want to keep that going as long as we can Dr. Miguel Cardona, again, is the Commissioner of the State Department of Education. We hope to have you back soon to take uh, more calls and to talk with you further, Commissioner. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Have a great day. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, again, we're going to hear about a Norwalk teacher with asthma who has sued her school district over its remote work policy. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Most school districts in Connecticut have some mix of remote and in-person learning because of COVID-19. But what happens to teachers and staff who cannot work in a school building due to a pre-existing condition? Some local districts have worked out arrangements for teachers to work fully remote, but that's not the case for a physical education teacher in Norwalk. Now she's suing the school district in what her attorney describes as the first lawsuit of its kind in Connecticut that fights no remote teaching policies. Joining us now on Zoom, Gary Phelan, partner with Mitchell and Sheehan in Stratford and Westport, Connecticut. Gary, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Lucy. Good morning. So tell us about your client. Uh, I believe her name is Amanda and uh, what she heard from her district uh, when this p- pandemic began. Well, Amanda has uh, asthma and uh, was told by her doctor that she cannot, you know, she's not able to use a mask or a face shield because it will, uh, uh, it will prevent her from being able to breathe effectively. And so uh, Norwalk has, like most school districts, uh, that you have to be a, in, wear a mask when you're teaching. And so she sought the right to teach remotely as an accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act and was told that there were no remote teaching positions available uh, because the school district had a no remote uh, policy. And that's something that several school districts throughout Connecticut unfortunately have. Now, when we think about uh, remote teaching, everyone was doing that uh, in March when this pandemic began. So can you describe as a physical education and health teacher uh, what Amanda was doing for her students back then and why uh, the school uh, doesn't think that that's possible with this new school year? Well, uh, <clears throat> like like in a variety of subject areas, teachers were teaching remotely. Now they um, we're able to, in, in the you know March to June time period, uh, be doing things with, she was able to do things with, uh, you know, like exercise. Uh, you know, she teaches in the, the K through five. So uh, different physical activities that kids could do, children could do on their own um, remotely. Uh, exercising, stretching, yoga, meditation. Uh, but now that students are back physically in the, in the um, in classrooms, 
or in gyms, um, then the uh, there wasn't a, a sort of analysis as is required under the Americans with Disabilities Act of just her situation. It was just a blanket, no remote policy. So she was denied the right to teach remotely. And you said that there are other school districts that have this no remote, no remote policy, but there are school districts that um, have tried to work uh, with uh, teachers and staff. And again, we should clarify, this isn't just Amanda saying that uh, she doesn't want to work because we're in a pandemic. She has a medical condition uh, that her doctor says she's not able to wear either a face mask or shield. That's correct. And just uh, there was a case, for example, in New York City, and I, I'm following up on Dr. Our Card- Cardona's uh, reference mm-hmm. to ADA compliance, mm-hmm. that that's important to them. Uh, in New York City, there's actually uh, has guidelines that say teachers can apply uh, to teach remotely if they have certain conditions outlined in the CDC guidelines that place them at uh, increased risk of complications if they contract COVID. That's essentially engrafting onto their policy, the Americans with Disabilities Act. What happens is when you have a no remote policy, it's essentially uh, precluding any accommodation and is the most common accommodation that's been used in several industries, you know, most industries throughout the country uh, to accommodate people who are at risk due to a medical condition if they contract COVID. You're hearing Gary Phelan here on Where We Live. He's a partner with Mitchell and Sheen in Stratford and Westport, Connecticut. As we learn more about a lawsuit by a Norwalk physical education teacher uh, who sued uh, the district uh, because she uh, wanted to be able to work remotely because of her pre-existing uh, condition, and she was told that she was unable to. We did reach out to the Norwalk Public Schools for a statement, and we did not hear back from the district by uh, the time of this show. But I wanted to uh, look at the, the complaint that was filed, uh, Gary, from the district perspective, they said that the reason they they are not able to provide uh, a remote work assignment for Amanda and others is because it would lead to undue hardship. So can you talk about uh, their perspective and again, how that uh, gels with the um, ADA and even what the federal EEOC says? Sure. The um, An employer has to provide a reasonable accommodation for a person with a disability unless it would create an undue hardship. Now, an undue hardship, um, it will be, in this case, the employer's burden to show. And I think the best way I found to explain the difference is, you know, is, is it an issue is that the school district, is it because they, they can't make an accommodation of remote teaching or they won't make an accommodation? And, so, and it really requires looking at each individual circumstance. And that's why here, where they just say, well, you can't, um, you, you know, we, we, it's really a question of that, that from our perspective, they won't. They won't even try to make the accommodation. And it's why often with the Americans with Disabilities Act, where you have blanket rules, why they are often found to violate the Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm. Uh, looking further at that complaint, I believe uh, the the school's attorney, Christopher uh, Sugar, wrote that there is currently a substitute staffing shortage throughout Connecticut, and Norwalk is not immune from this lack of available substitutes. Uh, so they're saying that there's just not enough personnel available uh, to uh, accommodate, again, Amanda's request if she's able to teach remotely. I mean, how do you respond to that? Well, first of all, the accommodation was sought in September. Mm. Um, and the um, 
the response that of the difficulty of fi filing finding substitutes, you know, was made in um, uh, late October. If they had made the accommodation back in September when it was sought, it wouldn't be as much of a problem. Secondly, there are options. You know, in this case, for example, if she's teaching remotely, um, very common in school districts where they have a, you know, a, um, a teacher's aide, um, a, a college student who is getting credit, you know, in order to graduate, that they be in the classroom. Um, they were much more readily available. And again, the fact that it might be inconvenient or difficult does not necessarily reach the pretty high standard of an undue hardship. You know, we're in this uh, time of a pandemic where, uh, you know, there are many people uh, who have pre-existing conditions and, uh, you know, it's it's they have to choose between, uh, you know, making a living or their health. And I'm just wondering, uh, you'd mentioned, uh, I believe it's been reported, this is the first of its kind lawsuit in Connecticut. Do you ex anticipate that there'll be more lawsuits like this, Gary, uh, where people feel like their employer should be accommodating them because of the ADA, because of these, the fact that they have pre-existing conditions? I, I definitely anticipate there will be more um, with some people initially file with state and federal agencies and they have what's called exhaust or administrative remedies. Those, uh, many of them will result in um, lawsuits. Also, I anticipate there'll be claims filed by people who ended up retiring or leaving teaching because of no remote policies, because um, essentially where you're telling someone with a medical condition we are not going to accommodate you with remote teaching. You've just ruled out uh, what is the most beneficial accommodation that could have enabled them to continue teaching. Mm. And so tell us more about how Amanda has been making it work and anticipate of the fact that she can't go in uh, to do her job. I mean, how is she able to continue to pay her bills and what other remedies uh, does she have? Well, she uh, right now she's on uh, unpaid FMLA leave. Um, often with uh, different uh, people in municipalities and school districts, if they have accrued and unused sick, uh, sick time, you know, they can use that bank. And that's one of the things she's, she's utilizing. But, but again, that's going to run out. And so like many teachers, they really have a choice of, um, you know, are you going to uh, teach and take the risk um, or be deprived of an income um, for, uh, you know, for most of a year? or however long it takes until it, it becomes safe again for people with medical conditions. But again, this is not a case where we're just saying she's, you know, that she, I mean, she really wants to teach. She loves her job. Um, but as is reflected by, you know, municipalities like New York City, to do that, you know, that that, that, that doesn't mean that uh, school districts can, can essentially say, well, we're immune under the Americans with Disabilities Act because we really want everyone physically back in a classroom. You know, we talked about Amanda's uh, pre-existing condition, asthma, uh, Gary, but uh, beyond her her doctor saying that uh, she can't wear a face mask or shield, there's also uh, what uh, we know from the medical community about uh, COVID and how uh, people like Amanda are more at risk uh, of when, when they um, have this virus of uh, becoming uh, very sick or even dying. That's correct. According to the CDC's guidelines, someone who has a condition that's identified uh, as being high risk is six times more likely to be hospitalized and 12 times more likely to die if they contract COVID. Those are various serious numbers. 
Now, the, the fortunately, the death rate uh, proportionally is coming down, um, but it's still obviously high and continues to go up um, as now we're seeing cases are spiking. And what does it look like right now in Norwalk, Connecticut, with COVID cases, Gary? Norwalk is also uh, spiking. Several of their schools have gone fully remote. Um, they are on the red alert list that you talked about with Dr. Uh, Cardona. Mm. Again, you're hearing Gary Phelan, partner with Mitchell and Sheen in Stratford in Westport, Connecticut, as we hear again about this lawsuit filed by a Norwalk teacher uh, over the district's no remote uh, teaching policy. Coming up after the break, we're going to hear from a reporter with Education Week about how school districts in other states are handling requests from teachers in the pandemic. You can join us, too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, COVID cases in Connecticut continue to rise, and the majority of residents now live in so-called red zones. On the next Where We Live, Governor Lamont has ordered a voluntary curfew and is requiring restaurants to close by 9.30 p.m. But what will this mean for an industry already on a knife's edge financially? And with winter approaching, is there a way to enjoy restaurant dining indoors safely? You can join our conversation. That's tomorrow. Now, my guest is attorney Gary Phelan, who told us about his client, a Norwalk physical education and health teacher who's suing her school district for not allowing her to work remotely despite having a pre-existing condition. We wanted to know how other school districts around the country are responding to these requests from teachers. Joining us now on Zoom is Madeline Will. She's a staff writer with Education Week. Madeline, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to find out uh, from your perspective, uh, how are school districts accommodating teachers? Uh, What have you heard? Yeah, so there's been, you know, the Kaiser Family Foundation estimates that one in four teachers have a high risk condition that puts them at high risk for COVID-19. So school districts across the country have seen an uptick in teachers requesting accommodations to work remotely. And in some cases, that has put districts in a tough spot of we need to either we need to maintain staffing levels on campus um, while also trying to accommodate as many teachers as possible. So districts have had to um, either find creative workarounds if they can't grant teachers the exact accommodations that they have asked for, um, or in some cases, school districts have not been able to reopen at all. Mm. Now, knowing what uh, Gary has told us about uh, the ADA, I'm just curious, are there other cases where we see districts, despite teachers having a pre-existing condition, telling them you can't work remotely and there, there haven't been any accommodations made? Are other lawsuits uh, being filed? I have heard of um, lawsuits in uh, several different states, including um, several in New York State um, and uh Palm Beach County, Florida, teachers asked um, a judge there to uh, allow teachers to work remotely if they if they felt that was necessary. Um, the judge said there was no legal right to work remotely and that it would be um, an over uh, step an overstep to close the schools down for that request. So um, I think there are some uh, cases where the judges have. Uh, um, shut down those uh, lawsuits and then um, several others are still playing out in courts. Hmm. 
Mm. Gary Phelan, could you respond to what uh, Madeline just told us about uh, what's happened in other states and with uh, judges making these decisions? Uh, yes. Uh, I'm going to talk about two cases in particular. One is in a uh, lawsuit in, filed in New York um, City uh, challenging their, pol- their um, policy with respect to remote teaching. Uh, but what they were saying is that remote teaching shouldn't just be uh, limited to people with medical conditions or uh, what the ADA requires, that it should go beyond that uh, for, for example, people who are, you know, have family members uh, with medical conditions where they would be, ex- you know, exposed to greater risk. Um, and the court said that um, the ADA doesn't require that, which is true. And so, uh, but, but um, that doesn't mean the accommodation of just for the individual teacher wouldn't be enforceable. Another case was in Boston where there was a lawsuit filed by the union uh, challenging uh, returning to uh, to the school district for uh, certain for high, uh, you know, high risk learners. And in that case, the court held that there wouldn't be, you know, all requires uh, teachers weren't required to return. Again, it didn't focus on the Americans with Disabilities Mm -hmm. Act. It was just basically a general safety argument on behalf of all employees uh, or all teachers. I'm not aware of any any uh, decision yet where specifically a teacher seeking an accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act, where a court said, no, you're not entitled mm-hmm. to it, uh, where it deals with remote teaching. Gary, I'm, I'm glad you brought up unions. Uh, Madeline, how are unions? around the country responding uh, when uh, they have their members, their teachers that have uh, these uh, pre-existing conditions and are trying uh, to be able to work uh, remotely and those requests have been denied? Yeah, teachers unions across the country and some have brought lawsuits on behalf of those teachers. Others are trying to negotiate with the districts and um, set up a policy for uh, teachers who are at high risk. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to put this into their collective bargaining agreements. Is that an approach? Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary, you, you brought up uh, earlier this point about, you know, we don't know yet how many teachers have had to retire early uh, in this pandemic. And so I, I wanted to hear from you, uh, Madeline, uh, what do we know in terms of teachers who've had to give up their careers uh, in this pandemic because they may um, have a pre-existing condition or they're of a certain age where they're at higher risk if they uh, get COVID or even if they live in a household with a child or spouse who's at higher risk. Uh, what do we know about how many teachers um, are retired? hiring or leaving the profession. Right. So in the summer, there was a lot of talk that there would be a huge wave of teachers uh, retiring or resigning um, because of the reasons you mentioned. But uh, Education Week, we did an analysis to try to find data to support that, and we couldn't find it. Um, It really varies from place to place. In some districts, um, maybe some states, they've seen an uptick in retirements, but in many other places, it's flat or even down. Um, And we talked to experts who said, you know, the economy is is not great right now. A lot of teachers just can't afford to give up their jobs. Mm. Gary, did you want to add more to that? Well, I would echo that a lot of teachers are, um, because they can't afford not to work, uh, despite the, you know, the high risk involved, they are continuing um, to do their jobs. Also, a lot of school districts um, are willing to offer remote accommodations. So it's not necessarily the fact that every school district, you know, is is um, uh, is, is implementing a no remote policy. And, you know, and I think that one of the things I think is discouraging is, you know, the technological tools out there that are being utilized 
um, such as Google Classrooms and, and for a wide variety of areas um, that, uh, you know, we had the schools had the experience of utilizing them in the spring. Now that that experience is being essentially disregarded with a no remote policy, um, you know, because technology is the key component of accommodations related to COVID. And mm. here, many school districts are just saying, we're not even going to consider that. Now, we talked about cases going up in our state, uh, Gary, and then we look at even on the western side of our state in places like uh, Norwalk. What would happen uh, for your client, Amanda, if uh, the school district had to go full remote? What would that mean for her job? Well, ideally, um, you know, I think that they would ask her to uh, um, to teach. Whether or not that's the case, I'm, I'm not sure. But but again, if as school districts start to go remote as the cases spike up, that certainly may be one thing that we'll start to see. Mm. Now, you're, we're talking to you about this particular lawsuit that you filed on behalf of your client, but uh, maybe explain to us, uh, Gary, uh, because of uh, these uh, situations, uh, the administrative uh, remedies that need to be exhausted before an employee can even file a lawsuit, uh, the process that can take many months. Sure. What uh, in mo- in most cases, what uh, individuals have to do is file a claim with a state uh, and federal agency, and it has to stay with the agency for for at least six months. What's unique about a school district is they are a federal fund recipient, and the you know there's the Federal Rehabilitation Act that gives them the right to go to court immediately and not necessarily have to exhaust administrative remedies. That's what we're relying on in this case. The Rehabilitation Act is essentially the foundation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, It took the Rehabilitation Act and expanded it to um, the private workplace. Mm. I want to fit in a quick call. Rebecca from Rocky Hill, we just have two minutes. Go ahead with your question. I'm thinking that one reason that we don't have so many teachers admitting they're retiring now is they're waiting to see how things play out. Partly because if you're high on the pay scale and you retire now, you are probably never going to get hired as a teacher again. And in at 13 states, whether you take another job or not, you're not going to get Social Security. We're not eligible for it. Mm. Gary, do you want to respond? I, uh, I would agree. And, um, you know, certainly what many school districts are doing that have rem- uh, no remote teaching policies are saying you can take a year off. We're going to give you a leave of ab- unpaid leave of absence a year and then come back and things may be a lot different um in a year from now the problem is supporting themselves during that year mm. and that is something that norwalk offered your client amanda that she could take that one year unpaid leave correct mm. uh, madeline will who's been with us again staff writer with education week what will you be watching for in these next few months or longer in terms of uh, again uh, districts accommodating uh, teachers because this pandemic is far from over right yeah I think it'll be interesting to see how this lawsuit and others play out um, if these teachers are granted accommodations and uh, like the caller said what um, retirement numbers look like next year or as as um, this pandemic progresses Mm. Gary, before we end the show, uh, again, this lawsuit was filed uh, recently. Uh, what are the next steps? Uh, what are What's next for Amanda? Well, as we proceed with the legal process, um, certainly there's always the possibility that we could reach some sort of resolution. Again, a lawsuit is really a last step. Ideally, reasonable accommodation is about 
uh, negotiating and reaching a, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a solution that all parties can live with. Uh, perhaps that'll happen in this case. Uh, we certainly hope so. And can I ask, are you hearing from other teachers? Uh, yes, I've heard before and after uh, of teachers who are also navigating no remote policies. Well, we hope to speak with you in the future, Gary, to find out um, how this is remedied uh, for your client, Amanda. Gary Phelan, again, is partner with Mitchell and Sheehan in Stratford and Westport, Connecticut. Gary, thank you. Thank you. Also with us today, Madeline Will, staff writer with Education Week. Madeline, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Uh, Carmen Baskoff was on the phones today. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You can download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app, and we hope you join us tomorrow. <laughs>